Hello, I'm Rachel Borthwick, and welcome back to Out of the Closet and Into the Pews. As I've noted before in previous episodes, this podcast aims to mark and celebrate an emerging theological and religious scholarship among religious people who self-identify as queer. Out of the Closet and Into the Pews aims to get us to understand that queer power is not inherently a secular movement, but rather that many queer folk understand their faith to be associated with their queerness. In today's episode, episode 11, also noted as our special episode, I wanted to ask what it means to tell the story of Stonewall as the birth of queer rights. Martin Duberman notes that we have, since 1969, been trading the few tales about the riots from the same few accounts, trading them for so long that they have transmogrified into simplistic myth. From evaluating the ways in which queer religion classes have centered whiteness, and especially during my academic career at Skidmore College, I wanted to understand how Stonewall as an origin story for queer folk in the United States is a story of exclusion, one that has kept queerness, transness, and queer studies white. In doing so, I wanted to ask why Stonewall has become so important and what it would mean for queer and religious studies to center people of color in queer religious narratives. In order to understand how Stonewall is a story of exclusion that has kept queerness white, we must turn to what Stonewall draws on in relation to race, religion, and nation. In doing so, this podcast aims to understand what it means to say that Stonewall is a world-building narrative for the queer community. What does the year 1969 mean to you? Oppressive, white, exclusion, myth. Myth, false narrative, exclusive. Revolution, rejection, exclusion, myth. Revolution, erasure, white narrative, myth. Exception, riots, liberation, myths. Resistance, exclusion, myth, and false narrative. What you just heard are young queer activists recounting words that describe what Stonewall means to them. On the evening of June 27, 1969, New York police raided the Stonewall Inn, a queer bar in Greenwich Village. This was not unusual, however. Police raids of queer bars were common in New York and other American cities during the 1960s. This time, however, bar patrons fought back, instead of passively enduring the violent and oppressive treatment at the hands of the police. Their response initiated a riot that lasted into the night. The Stonewall riots are typically viewed as the spark of the gay liberation movement and a turning point in the history of gay life in the United States. At Stonewall, the openness of white gay men to radical ideas enabled them to recognize the riot as an opportunity. These radical impulses moderated quickly as the movement coalesced around a gay rights and gay pride political agenda that ultimately centered whiteness. As the movement took shape, it centered the experience of middle-class white gay men and marginalized the concerns of less privileged individuals. For LGBTQ plus folk, history is of particular importance. 
For far too long, queer history and existence has been denied and erased. The stories we tell about our past justify and legitimate our experience in the present. It's why unearthing and reclaiming our history was one of the highest priorities of the gay and lesbian rights movement in the 70s. But in this podcast, I want to ask, who does Stonewall give legitimacy to in the queer community? My point here is to say that there is no inevitable LGBTQ plus narrative or history that has not centered whiteness in the United States around Stonewall. And the stories we tell about our community are always political and contested. Not everyone has the same privileges that gives them the tells and power of storytelling or history making, or even the power to amplify their preferred story if they choose to do so. In light of this, I want to ask whose interests are being served by the prevailing history of Stonewall, and who gets to decide that Stonewall is the origin story for all LGBTQ plus folk in the United States. For LGBTQ plus communities of color, the fight for queer liberation did not begin or start at Stonewall. It was a single moment in a massive movement that touched many parts of the population. Mainstream gay rights organizations often depict the movement for queer liberation as dominated by white cisgender men and Stonewall as a sudden explosion of inexplicable queer rage. This rendering of history is wrong. The rendering of history writes out the movement's scope and sweep and contributions of people like Martha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. Because historical events and memories of them imbue the present with meaning, one of the most instructive questions to explore is how the emphasis on Stonewall as a beginning has influenced the way we understand queer history before and after 1969. The insistence on the Stonewall rise as a point of rupture, a radical breaking point with the past, fabricates a historical scheme in which Stonewall separates the past repression of gay culture from its present realization. Once upon a time, there was no gay organizing movement and community, and then all of a sudden came Stonewall, and now there is gay organizing movement and community. This narrative is wrong. Movements have roots and origins, and the movements and roots of the origins of queer communities begin before Stonewall. Laverne Cox puts it this way, where we are as an LGBTQ plus community over 45 years after the Stonewall Rebellion, Sylvia Rivera warned us about becoming a movement that was only for white, middle-class people. And 45 years later, the most marginalized communities are still struggling. Here, Laverne Cox wants us to understand how the story of Stonewall has left behind queer and trans voices of color. Sociologists, Elizabeth Armstrong and Suzanne Craig argue that numerous features of Stonewall allowed it to be commemorated despite several other prior instances of violent LGBTQ plus resistance to the police. Armstrong, Armstrong and Craig put it this way. The Stonewall riots were remembered because they were the first to meet two conditions. Activists considered the event commemorable and had the capacity to create a commemorative vehicle. That this conjuncture occurred in New York in 1969 and not earlier or elsewhere was the result of a complex political development that converged in this time and place. The success of the national commemorative ritual planned by New York activists depended on its resonance, not only in New York, but also in other US cities. Gay community members found Stonewall commemorable 
and the proposed parade an appealing form of commemoration. The parade was amenable to institutionalization, leading it to survive over time and spread around the world. While Armstrong and Craig revealed that the development of the Stonewall myth seems to be an achievement of gay liberation rather than an account of its origins, it's important to ask who this achievement was for. The dominant narrative of the Stonewall myth is that in late June 1969, repressed gay men in New York City resisted police violence and harassment and launched a global movement for gay rights. In this Stonewall myth, people of color and transgender people are completely minimized or absent entirely. If transgender people were able to access the same privileges of storytelling and history making that white gay men had, we might be celebrating the birth of trans rights in August 1966 or in May 1959. The month of August 1966 is a month when a group of trans sex workers resisted police harassment at Compton's Cafe in San Francisco. San Francisco activists mobilized in response to police raids on gay bars in the early 1960s, which came to a head in the New Year's Eve's ball in 1965 that eventually brought down the police commissioner. The New Year's Eve raid attracted wide media attention, gar garnered heterosexual support, and is credited with galvanizing local activists, but it was subsequently forgotten. In 1966, again in San Francisco, LGBTQ plus people rioted at Compton's Cafe, smashing all the windows of a police car, setting fires, and picketing the restaurant for its collusion with the police. The city's gay establishment did not participate, and distanced themselves from the transgender and street use and their political organization, Vanguard, behind the violent protest. I use violent very intentionally here because it's how it was characterized by the white queer community. In May 1959, a group of transgender women and gay men pelted police officers with donuts and coffee cups to protest police harassment at Cooper Donut in Los Angeles. The police arrested a number of protesters, but they all escaped police custody. And if Black LGBTQ plus folk had the same access to the privileges of storytelling and history making, then we might locate the origins of the LGBTQ plus movement in the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s, when many queer artists, musicians, and authors rose to national prominence. But they don't have that same power. And that's a white male achievement of the Stonewall myth. As a result, different forms of queerness are often placed in a racial hierarchy measuring against the white model of queerness that Stonewall symbolizes. The Stonewall myth is fundamentally a story created and syndicated by white, middle-class, gay men to serve white interests. It's clear that the roots of the queer movement lie elsewhere and elsewhen for queer people of color, one that does not place Stonewall at its center. With the mythical story of Stonewall comes the exclusion and marginalization of other modes of queer resistance. Although Stonewall offers a powerful story for white queer folk around the globe, it also plays an active part in colonizing the memory of LGBTQ movements and forms of queer resistance by people of color. The erasure of race from Stonewall entails the embodiment of racialization to non-white bodies, while simultaneously 
operating through the invisibility of whiteness. Knowledge and power are central to storytelling and history-making narratives. This craving for dominance is the attitude between queerness, which is often deeply associated with whiteness. It is an attitude that pronounces the urgent, pained insistence on part of many queer individuals that their queerness be known and that their pronouns be corrected, applied by all. It is also an attitude that compels young individuals to feel seen and existently validated. Beneath is a craving for the safety. To find comfort in the white world instead of taking responsibility for changing it. Far too often, white queer folk find this comfort. But more than this, in investing so much in Stonewall, we not only diminish the work of people of color, but we also diminish everything that came before it through tying it to this mythic event. If one aspect of a queer project is to denaturalize binaries or social norms, and if certain dominant aspects of this project are centrally concerned with or have been led by white queers, the process of denaturalizing the location of whiteness within queerness may involve, at least in part, the necessary domestication of white queers. In other words, tying white queers back to the identity category white whilst potentially being antithetical to the refutuation of fixed identity categories, may nonetheless serve the function of queering. It may work to highlight the complex racial tensions that underpin queer equal rights movements and that shape the voices that are heard within the context of queer theory. The visions of Stonewall implies access to a cultural space where identity is well-defined and validated. However, when so much of queer visibility is grounded in white history, white bodies, and white gatekeepers, we must question who benefits from the myth-making of the Stonewall narrative. At this point, you might ask why the queer community are arguing over who threw the first brick. Let me be clear, it really doesn't matter. These answers to these questions are complex, but one of the most important reasons is that we remember the past informs policy and priorities in the present. If we understand history as an inevitable march on the path towards progress, then demands for radical action seem misplaced. But if we understand the past as a continuous struggle, then modern activism has a genealogy and modern organizers have a responsibility to address unfulfilled promises. If we remember the gay rights movement as entirely male or white, if we whitewash the past, then it becomes less imperative for those in the present to ensure our movements are equitable and designed to represent the most needing representation. If on the other hand, we remember past movements as they actually were, as diverse, interconnected, as radical, and often led by the most marginalized members of communities, then it becomes vital to again center the needs of those for whom Johnson and Rivera fought. More accurate renderings of the past inform the way we act in the future. They inform whose lives we prioritize in the present. Rivera once stated that she hurt for the simple fact that the movement never recognized the drag queen until the year 1989, 20 years after Stonewall. Whether it's the story of Stonewall or the fight for marriage equality, the popular narrative of LGBTQ plus liberation often centers respectable white, gay, cis men. 
Trans people didn't just suddenly emerge at Stonewall or suddenly appear on college campuses and around the globe. You can't understand the visibility of trans people today without recognizing that their history has been erased. In understanding this, we must confront an uncomfortable truth. Much of the gay rights movement that emerged from Stonewall abandoned the needs of queer and trans people of color. For the white queer community, it is clear that while it may be about queer identity to some extent, it is really about gaining the levels of power that whiteness grants them. Stonewall was, at its core, about people reclaiming their narratives from a society that told them they were sick or did not exist. One lesson of Stonewall is that the line between fantasy and fact is very blurry. Stonewall isn't a simple history, it's mythology. Yet the iconography of Stonewall enabled middle-class white gays and lesbians to view themselves as resistant and transgressive. Stonewall narratives in depicting the agents of riots as gay alighted the central role of poor gender non-conforming people of color in that night's acts of resistance against New York City police. But just as the gay had excluded transgender in the Stonewall imaginary, the claim that transgender people were at Stonewall too enacted its own omissions of the word transgender in certain communities. Rivera was poor and Latina, while some transgender activists making political claims on the basis of her history were white and middle class. In fact, it seems that the myth of Stonewall is entirely reliant upon the erasure of some of the people who were there. By erasing people of color, the whitewashing of Stonewall invariably reduces queer history to the history of white, gay men and women. According to Thomas Pekinuk, it seems that in some ways this erasure is twofolded. For Pekinuk, there is the effacement of gender and race in accounts of the riots that mention neither a large number of the patrons at the Stonewall Inn were Puerto Rican drag queens, nor that it may well have been a lesbian planting her foot in the chest of a police officer who started the chain of resistance during the first night of the riots. More than this, Pekinok notes that in celebrating Stonewall as the birth of the gay rights movement, ignores the history of those who came to gay liberation via the civil rights movement of the 1960s and 50s. It's clear that under the sign Stonewall, gay and lesbian activists joined a larger movement for social change. The movement, to use the name favored by those in it, and so found a legitimacy that they had not had before. Originally conceived as a catalyst for a radical political change, Stonewall eventually became the central trope of a mainstream gay culture that grounds its conceptions of gay identity within the specific experiences of urban, middle-class, white men. This transformation of Stonewall no doubt helped lead to the hegemony of the rights-oriented gay activists, for whom liberation means simply extending the legacy of American freedoms to white homosexuals in a pluralistic society to white queers. Today we must understand how Stonewall is a messy historical event, one that is also myth, one that is also myth that has obscured and erased many queer identities. In multiplying the meaning of Stonewall, it may help us acknowledge the differences among queer people. Ultimately, it is evident that the, the widening and heteronormativity of the gay image 
aims to define and create a mythological and unified gay past that will only affirm and reinforce whiteness. In this context, erasing gay people of color from the memory of Stonewall seems to be too inevitable. We can even see this in the narrative of the media coverage during the June 2016 Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. Despite the fact that the vast majority of victims were gay Latinx, there's an absence of Latinx voices in speaking out about the Pulse nightclub shooting. This ultimately shifted the dialogue from the intersections of race and sexuality to just sexuality alone. As white gay men came to speak for the entire community. After Pulse, white gay cis men were able to claim victimhood and demand justice as they simultaneously helped to erase the Latinx voices that were targeted at Pulse. It's clear that the Stonewall narrative has relied in part on portraying white gay men and lesbian women as just being straight white people in every way but one. Pushing the normality of queerness in a country steeped in racism and heterosexism means promoting the whiteness of the queer community in an attempt to veil the absence of its heterosexuality. This leaves a clear message in the Stonewall narrative. If you can't be straight, at least you can be white. The story of Stonewall takes an even more surprising turn when we turn to Heather White's work on being born again at Stonewall. Born Again at Stonewall, the book's fifth and final chapter, undertakes three interrelated tasks to show how religion shaped gay liberation's ideology and practice in the 1970s. It critically reads the commemoration of the Stonewall riots as a religious tradition. It shows how gay and lesbian religious practitioners were central to the forging of the idea that queer activism was born at Stonewall, and it maps the growth of gay-affirming religious organizations in the 1970s. The untold story of Stonewall, White states, is a movement sparked by a bar raid, held most of its meetings in churches. White notes that although gay liberationists have often been characterized as completely rejecting religion, liberal Protestants were important to early gay liberation organizing in many U.S. cities. White states that the year after Stonewall, in New York City and Los Angeles, activists held commemorations of the riot, with the Los Angeles commemorations taking the form of the nation's first gay pride parade. Christians who had formed a gay-friendly denomination known as the Metropolitan Community Church were foundational to the planning of the parade. After the parade, the church held a hunger fast for gay rights, which led to the arrest of Perry, the founder of the church and therefore significant press coverage which gave the movement a particular visibility. More than serving as organizers for these new gay pride parades, mainline Protestants were particularly responsible for giving visibility to the Stonewall myth itself. The notion that Stonewall was a pivotal event in the emergence of the broader LGBTQ movement in the US specifically. White argues that people of faith were among the most enthusiastic purveyors of the Stonewall narrative, because of the story of a late-night bar raid transposed through collective memory to Friday night instead of Saturday morning, recalled the familiar story of the crucifixion, while the Sunday ritual of gay pride, in turn, evoked the twin triumphs of Exodus and Easter. The linked practice of coming out rehearsed a narrative about a transformed self that recalled conversion and testimony. Here's Heather White from earlier in our season 
talking about her chapter in Reforming Sodom. Your historical analysis in Reforming Sodom, which traces further back than Stonewall and combines queer religious experiences, encourages us to rethink the secularization process from the blurring of religious, queer, and secular spheres. You note that the Stonewall narrative and its commemoration were a perfect vehicle for fusing gay and religious identities into a seamless whole. Your last chapter really had me pause and think how you were connecting Stonewall with religious events. I'm wondering if you could continue this thread for our listeners and kind of outline that, but also tell us, like, did you receive any reactions to this work? Because Stonewall really, in a lot of circles, is not considered as a religious event. And actually, so, and I'm, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of summarize the main point of that chapter. And I'll say that one of the things that I, I was struggling with in that chapter was figuring out how to explain like why it is that most narratives about Stonewall are seem just totally secular. And by totally secular, I mean that like religion has nothing to do with this at all. You know, the story of a, a raid by the police at a queer bar, the queers fight back, they resist. And this is sort of the beginning of the liberation movement. So that's probably the story most people know, even if historians have corrected many parts of it. But the interesting thing is why it is that people know that story isn't simply because it happened. Like, I mean, in that we know that fact because there actually are earlier movements of moments and movements of resistance against the police by queer folks, earlier riots, earlier protests. It wasn't the start. It wasn't the only, it wasn't the beginning. Like, all of these things that present Stonewall as, I like this phrase too, the birthplace of queer rights are historically mostly fictional, right? So I'm, and that also as a descriptive story about what happened, it would seem to be totally absent of religion. But the part of it that helped me step back from this was to say, well, this isn't a descriptive story. This is what scholars of religion would call a myth. And that doesn't mean that it's false necessarily, but the way that scholars of religion study myths is to look at them as structuring realities, as world building narratives, right? And Stonewall is absolutely a world making or world building narrative that structures a idea of a queer community that is diverse and yet unified, that has this moment of sort of origin story that we can all connect to. In fact, we like to fight about (laughs) who was most important in that particular story. And in finding a representative of each group within the LGBTQ plus community, right? It places each of that diverse population there at the heart of the origin of the movement. And in some ways is a way for us to, to really work on assigning sacred importance to marginalized groups within queer communities. And that's what I mean by calling it a myth. So when looking at the myth-making patterns and sort of looking at how this this narrative came to take up myth-making importance, right, means looking at not only what happened at that event, it means looking at what happened after it. So how did it become so important? (laughs) And part of that story is looking at how each city and town, different localities across the United States, literally took up the ritual. And the ritual, of course, is commemorating the event, the moment of pride celebrations that all over, all over the U.S. and now all over the world, 
remember Stonewall as a foundationally important event for queer folks. So there is an entire ritual that has been built out of that. And I mean, not incidentally, groups like the Metropolitan Community Church and especially other religious and spiritual members of queer communities in the 1970s were really important in organizing Stonewall commemorations in their city. The Metropolitan Community Church especially was really important for organizing Stonewall commemorations in their cities. So there we could see Christian fingerprints and and religious or spiritual fingerprints all over the place in the making of the Stonewall narrative. There's a lot, I will say there's a, there's a lot more to spell out than I, I mean, I, I feel like the argument in that final chapter has, is doing two things at once. It's telling about the myth-making practices of Stonewall while also using that to feature and highlight how important religion was to movement building, especially during the 1970s, which is the focus of that chapter. And to say that the story about how it all began seems to hide religion as something that was important. But in many ways, it's because those religious people were there lifting up the story, like marching in the streets to commemorate that moment. We're building that myth that incidentally, like, I don't, well, they didn't think it excluded them. They recognized in that story a very familiar one that in many ways is a very Christian story about the despised and the wretched of the earth facing off a moment of violence, like, I mean, almost literally on a Friday night and then having this victorious moment of overcoming on a, on Sunday. So there's, there's parts of that that are, that really fit the Easter story and the Passover story within Christianity and the Christianity story echoes parts of Jewish narratives about Passover. So there is some, some interesting Judeo-Christian echoes within the Stonewall narrative. The idea that religion has not been involved in the Stonewall narrative has kept queerness and transness white for centuries. In my earlier episodes, I spoke with Dr. Melissa Wilcox. Here's Dr. Wilcox getting us to understand what it means to exclude religion from the story of Stonewall. Yeah, so there's a great scholar by the name of Heather White who has done some really, really important work to help us understand what a short history that assumption actually has. A story that I tell in one of my books is about a gay journalist who came to visit the liberal arts college where I used to teach, which was just about as rural as Skidmore and maybe even a little bit more. And he, my friend who was also a teacher there at the time, who also doesn't work there anymore, was the one hosting him. And they saw me across the quad and he waved me down and said, oh, come over and meet my guest who's visiting for a few days. And the guest was very happy to meet another person who did group studies until he found out that I also study religion and that I study queer people who are religious. And his next response was, what do you mean? There are gay Southern Baptists? And I was kind of like, of course there are. Like, what kind of a question is that? Like, is the sky blue? And so I said, yes. And he said, well, what are they doing? Having their heads chopped off? This is not revolutionary France, actually. And no, I mean, occasionally, if they're like leading a congregation or something, occasionally the congregation gets kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention against the principles of Baptist churches in general. But of course they're there. So this this assumption is is so deep and so widespread 
my students all know that I'm fond of pointing out that in Gaga Feminism, Jack Halberstam actually managed to call religion the root of all evil, not stopping for a moment to think about where his concept of evil was coming from and why that's a way that you can dismiss things. But this assumption is, is, is less than 100 years old. But we have bought it so thoroughly and completely that we've lost track of a lot of queer and trans people. And the argument has been really soundly made by, by a number of scholars now that this assumption also keeps queerness white and transness. And that's also, I mean, that's not just a bad assumption, it's politically dangerous. However, we must also understand the work of James Baldwin who asks us to understand how in adopting Christianity, you're adopting a faith that is unable to disentangled from white supremacy and racism. A letter from a region in my mind by James Baldwin demonstrates not only his ability to expose the ways that anti-black racism constituted American social and political life, but also its cultural imagination. Baldwin wants us to understand that racism is a religious lie, one that has been used as a weapon against the black community. Baldwin also wants us to acknowledge that there is no way to separate God and Christianity from the system. He states that the experience of the white world cannot possibly create in him any respect for the standards by which the white world claims to live. His own condition is overwhelmingly proof that the white people do not live by these standards. Ultimately, Baldwin wants us to acknowledge the ways in which black America has been socially constructed by white America's hostility, fear, and ignorance and the ways in which Christian virtues have subjugated people. But he's also asking us to see how the Christian church has espoused colonialism in order to erase the black community. In understanding James Baldwin's work, it's clear that we need an intersectional approach to the LGBTQ community. Activist, poet, and graduate student at the University of California, Berkeley, Alan Pilaz, knows this firsthand. He once stated in an interview, that the way he navigates the world as an undocumented immigrant is different, as a black queer body is different, but he sees these experiences simultaneously. He also urged the LGBTQ movement to adopt an intersectional approach to advocacy, stating that intersectionality is asking what kinds of privileges some LGBTQ members have and who gets denied them. While the academic definition of intersectionality is complex, it really means broadening our social justice movement. Not only is it used as a shorthand to talk about the work between coalitions and how we may coalition build from the same standpoints or different, it also comes to embody the idea that, as with the experience of identity, the sources of oppression are interconnected. In order to explore how Stonewall tells a narrative of nation, we must define nationalism and populism. Nationalism implies the identification of the state or nation with the people, and there's a clear sense of allegiance. A modern world of nation is one that has evolved around identity. When we think about how Stonewall has crafted a narrative of nation, it's clear that this narrative of nation is evolved around an idea of whiteness. Populism, on the other hand, is an exclusionary concept about who is a real member of the nation. For the Stonewall queer nation, only certain types of people fit into we, the people. It's clear that only white people, 
white queer people fit into this Stonewall queer nation. Queer Nation has taken up the project of coordinating a new nationality. And for some, it may seem to have given a sense where they can buy into acceptance and security and affirmation with their whiteness. Its relation to nationhood is multiple and ambiguous. However, taking as much from the insurgent nationalisms of oppressed people as their revolutionary idealism of the United States. Queer Nation aims to capitalize on the difficulty of locating the national public whose consent to self-expression founds ends. Queer Nation's outspoken promotion of a national sexuality not only discloses the mainstream national identity touts a subliminal sexuality more official than a state flower or a national bird, but also makes explicit how throughout the local experience of the body is framed by whiteness. Queer Nation's tactics of invention appropriate for gay politics, both grassroots and mass media forms of counterculture resistance from the left, feminist and civil rights movements of the 60s, the ones that insisted that the personal is political, engaging the complex relationship between the local and national practices. Queer Nation operates precisely in the American mode. When I say that Queer Nation operates precisely in American mode, I am talking that white queers buy into I'm saying that white queers buy into the ideas of safety, affirmation, and acceptance in a heterosexual white society. White queer folk clearly align their race with other white heterosexual folk in a bid to be safe and secure in a, in a modern nation state. However, queer nation also takes on a corporate strategy in order to exploit the psychic unboundness of consumers who depend on products to articulate, produce, and, satif- and satisfy their desires. Queer Nation tactically uses the hyperspaces created by the corporate trademark, the Metropolitan Parade, the shopping mall, print media, and finally, advertising to recognize and to take advantage of the consumer's pleasure in vicarious identification. It's clear that this type of pink capitalism is not really for queer folk, but rather illustrates the ways in which capitalism is falling in on itself in that it has to bring in more members of the nation to be able to participate. White queers are now able to participate in a certain type of pink capitalism. In this guise, corporate clients and CEOs and companies use white bodies in exchange for products, identities, information, and money. In expanding on this, we can see how Dan Miller's work on the social body helps us to understand how the social and national body is a space of social exclusion that has been imposed and maintained by force. Miller notes that the nation state is not involved in the ending of violence, but rather the regulation in that members that share identities and values, aka whiteness, are invited to navigate and assert their identities through dominance and violence. In doing so, Miller states that the social body's focus is hierarchical ordering, in that the social body metaphor has expressed a desire for impossible object, highlighting the inherently non-rational nature of efforts to maintain or reassert its normative and political order. From Dan Miller's work, it is evident that white queers have knit together an expanding network of institutions, organizations, and alliances that have amplified their voices and enhanced their power. It's clear that the LGBTQ history is of particular importance, as we've traced in this podcast but it's also evident that the myth of Stonewall is important for telling a specific story that simultaneously props up whiteness 
and erases historical memories of people of color. It's evident that the exclusion of religion and people of color from the Stonewall narrative tells a specific story for white queers that aims to center the stories of white gay Western men as the sole authors of LGBTQ plus experiences. Even if it seems that at glance queer rights have been primarily achieved in secular environments, the relationship between queer liberation and secularism has a complex and contradictory history. It seems that in some sense, the Stonewall narrative aims to construct LGBTQ plus life as incompatible with religion. So what was the point of this podcast series? As a queer student of religious studies at Skidmore College, Out of the Closet and Into the Pews is important in that it aimed to provide an understanding of the contextual and conceptual shifts in queer theoretical work. By transforming my capstone into a podcast through interviews with religion scholars, religious practitioners, and queer activists of faith, I was able to reframe my analysis around the intersections of queer theory, social movements, and religion in order to ask critical questions about how religious traditions and institutions can and have provided structural and ideological support for resistance and insurgency movements. As I approach the end of this academic project at Skidmore, I want to note that queer theory must continue to tackle religion and queer theoretical approaches to understand how religion presents opportunities for queer liberation. Religious studies must also grapple with the additive model in order to comprehend how approaches to queer religion are grounded in whiteness, heteronormativity, and patriarchy. In this way, academic studies of queering religion can depict the ways in which queer religious identities are a process of meaning-making integral to subject formation and self-identification. In creating a podcast that centered only queer voices, I aim to challenge the theological writings authored almost exclusively by heteronormative society to emphasize how queer scholars, queer practitioners, and queer activists can use religion in their own empowering ways. So while I noted earlier that the queer community has been arguing over who threw the first brick, it's clear that we've been arguing over the erasure of people of color by white queer folk in queer narratives. In stating that Stonewall is a world-building narrative, white queer communities have found ways to live peacefully, safely, and be affirmed by white heteronormative society. I'm Rachel Borthwick, and you've been listening to Out of the Closet and Into the Pews. Mm -hmm.